1: Should like just say hi, here's the show, and let's let this new person talk about themselves.
0: Great. Hi, here's the show. It's overdue. It's a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew.
2: And I guess my name is Margaret.
0: I guess your name is Margaret. I know my name is Margaret. I
2: just I guess that's the point where I say my name.
0: (laughs) Welcome to the show. What why would What's up? What's going on? What's your relationship to
1: books? (laughs) Jeez. <laughs> that was really that was really smooth was really i'm good ridiculous. at intros how about you tell people that this is margaret willison uh, uh she's, margaret
2: h willison technically
1: margaret h willison i'm sorry okay. i need to be on brand right well it's just, if it's just margaret
2: you. willison then it's my mom Oh, so, okay. excuse so,
0: like, me that's my
1: mom
2: <laughs> the initial isn't just to be fancy it's like mostly to be fancy
1: yeah i hear you it's like 80 20 uh-huh. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, she's at Mrs. Friday next on Twitter, and she is here to to talk about books with us this week. So, welcome, Margaret.
2: Hi, Andrew. Hi, Craig. Thanks hey. for having me. Thanks for giving me an excuse to fill in one of the most egregious gaps in my uh, reading history.
0: Which which we'll get to in a second, but which is <laughs> which is that that you're reading this week?
2: A uh, Little House on the Prairie by so Laura Ingalls Prairie. Wilder for the very Correct. first time.
0: Oh man. That's man. so good. Why is that why is that such a blemish on your record? Like why to go back to my earlier graceful question of what is your relationship to books? Like why is this particularly egregious? Like I haven't read them, but it doesn't really matter. So
2: <laughs> Well, on the one hand, like simply by fact of being like a woman who claims American okay. citizenship, like I think <laughs> okay. I think this is sort of required. Um Okay. But, like, I never read these books, and I never owned an American Girl doll, so...
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah, those are big
2: holes. I'm basically a Russian spy. (laughs) (laughs) But, more to the point, um, in terms of, like, my relationship to books, uh, I've written about books for the NPR website, and I've been on there talking about things, and I make a big noise about being passionate about children's literature on social media. Okay. Um, So... I should be better read than I am significantly better read than I am, especially in things that are basically foundational texts for American girlhood, like (laughs) the American girl doll books and little house of the prairie.
1: Well, so what are your, what are your favorite children's books that you've read at least up until now? Wow. And and why?
2: Yeah. Um, So like if I were creating foundational texts for American childhood, number one on the list would be half magic and it's sequels by a man named Edward eager. Um, They're terrific books about five kids who find a uh, magic talisman that only ever gives them half of what they wish for, and they can never anticipate which half they're going to get. Oh, um, no. So... Oh, that could
1: get messy. Like, what if you wish for a dog?
2: <laughs> In uh, one of my favorite chapters, To Read Aloud, they wish that their cat can speak, and then their cat can half speak and is furious about it. Oh, no. <laughs> Just enraged. But but mostly indefi- indecipherable.
1: Oh my God.
2: <laughs> and they're I, great. Um, okay. So, those Is, are some of those are, that's a favorite. Um, do you
0: find yourself more tuned into like contemporary children's lit or like classic children's literature?
2: Uh, I think I'm about equally tuned into both. I was just like a traitorous Anglophile as a child. So, like, my foundational texts were A Little Princess and uh, The Secret Garden by Frances Hodges yeah, okay. Burnett. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's an either-or situation here. I'm just saying, like, there was some deserving American literature that I just completely overlooked. Because I was, like, accents and I was going to say a swear. I'm not saying it. Get the heck out.
1: <laughs> There's still plenty of time for that. <laughs>
2: Accents or get the heck out. So both uh, Little House in the Prairie and Anne of Green Gables ended up shortchanged by me.
0: Because wow, everyone sounded yeah. like Americans.
2: Right, even in my head. You know, like yeah. they're just... Like the manners weren't stately. Like nobody was wearing <laughs> lace ruffs.
0: Everyone was eating <laughs> hot dogs and drinking beer.
2: In this case, um, corn cakes and salt pork. Um, but like, you know, I feel like as a child... This is one of the things I hope to talk to you about with you guys while we discuss the book, which is sort of like the appeal of uh, historical detail in children's books and whether that was something that like worked for you as kids or not. But for me, I was very into the appeal of historical detail. I just wanted to be snobbier than it was <laughs> in The Little House in the Prairie books. <laughs>
0: like, are you? OK, this is good. This is a direct question.
2: Direct question. As
0: opposed
1: to an indirect question.
0: (laughs) Well, I could phrase it as an indirect question. Did young (laughs) Margaret did young Margaret find (laughs) these books beneath her because they were agrarian and were they in the American West? Is that what
1: you're saying about yourself?
2: That is not. That is not. Oh, follow up question. Yeah.
1: Why do you hate the real America so much?
2: Well, I hate the real America so much because I was born in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> and we have standards here.
1: Okay. No, oh, no, no. That
2: was beaten out of me. I went to college, same as you guys did, in, in the American Middle West in Ohio. Yes, uh, true. And, and I learned not to call it flyover country because that's really, really dumb.
0: Well, A, it's dumb. And B, when you're flying there, it's not flyover country anymore. <laughs> when you are like disembark, willfully disembarking from a plane – yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So here's what I'd say. I didn't – It's there was never a point where, like, somebody was like, oh, my God, Margaret, you have to read The Little House on the Prairie books. And I was like, psh, farms? No, they do. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't happen. They're just – I didn't naturally gravitate towards them the way okay. I would naturally gravitate to books that featured Gothic mansions.
0: Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay.
2: And so historical detail in books – Like weird stuff that you wouldn't normally encounter in your day to day life I found deeply and profoundly Mm -hmm. fascinating I just wanted it to be more like silk petticoats um, and you know growing a garden on the Yorkshire moors sure with help Um, (laughs) (laughs) I
0: think when I was growing up it wasn't uh, it wasn't like the British upper crust it was science fiction with its own futuristic details like i am not ashamed to admit that i once owned like a technical manual for several vehicles in the star wars (laughs) franchise (laughs) like i could you know i used to know the manufacturers of all the things that you used to see in the films or read about in the books because you know you have time god
2: if they'd made one of those um the way things work books just just for star wars stuff yes that would be like, they probably, that's probably a thing that exists. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm talking yeah, about that no, like it's a I hypothetical. Imagine. I'm sure Eyewitness Books has like 62 in-depth How Things Work books about like the Millennium Falcon alone.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> Andrew, I'm quitting this podcast. I'm going to go start How It's Made, except it's all Star Wars <laughs> and Star Trek contraptions.
1: Okay, that'll it's be a I'd, I'd, I fictional like
0: documentary series.
1: Well, we had a good run, everyone.
0: We'll <laughs> see you Margaret, around. you take over. I'm out of <laughs> here.
2: I was going to say that I could add it, I could do like a new line on my resume, like killed dead. Like <laughs> <laughs> one flourishing podcast about podcasts
0: destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> It's a growing list.
2: Yeah, it could be a new line on my business card. <laughs> Margaret H. Wilson, <laughs> Podcast Destroyer.
0: Destroyer of Podcasts. Andrew, should we do the part where we talk about the author now? Yes. Okay. So each week, each week, uh one of us reads a book. This week it was Margaret, because she was kind enough to come on the show. Uh but before we talk about the book, or as we talk about the book, we like to talk about who wrote it. So uh before we let uh Margaret smack us with her expertise on this book oh god i don't it. know smack i don't know why i picked that andrew what do you know about laura Ingalls wilder
1: <laughs> um laura Ingalls wilder was born in 1867 and died in 1957 and she's best known for this series of books of which little house on the prairie is one about her like pioneered childhood mm-hmm. and like that that's the biggest thing that i think most people know um Margaret, um, one of the things that you sent around for us before the show, you know, before we started recording was about um, the authorship of the of the books and like how um, Laura may have shared those duties with her daughter, Rose. Is that is that right?
2: That is correct. Uh, That's what a lot of scholars have uh, pointed out in the years since the books were published. Um, Mm -hmm. There are substantial differences between the manuscripts that Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote and the final published works, and those are mostly Done in collaboration with her daughter, Rose Wilder, uh, who was kind of like a proto libertarian Randian ideologue. And by Randian, I hear mean Ein, um, yeah. as opposed to, I don't know, like Paul? Joe Rand, yeah, Paul Rand.
0: Wait, what did you say? Joe Yo Rand?
2: Joe, Joe oh. Rand. You're just going for like, you know, like a standard male name at the beginning of that didn't work out as well as I was hoping, but you, you see where I was headed.
0: <laughs> yes. You're fitting
1: in well. You're fitting in well. It was not um, about country singer Randy Travis. It was about Ayn.
0: objectivist Ayn Rand. Yeah. Wait, yeah. I want to wait. Now We anybody whose first name is Randy can be the leader of a movement that's called Randian? Is that what you're saying to me, Andrew? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm going to start a savage movement where we eat nothing but Slim Jims. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Now, what was the deal with Rose Wilder? Because, so, right, Laura Ingalls Wilder didn't end up writing her books until she was in her 60s, and her Old daughter older. had been writing books and articles for a good long time by then, right?
2: Books and articles of questionable accuracy. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> was was one of the major themes. By the way, if people want to uh, read this piece that we read, it's uh, The Wilder Women, and it was in The New Yorker a couple years ago. But if you just Google Laura Ingalls Wilder New Yorker, it's like the first hit.
0: We'll try okay. and toss it up on our Facebook this week. So uh, that would be definitely. great, too. That's, that's a
2: much better solution. <laughs> they, um, go- they don't
0: have to come to our Facebook. They can Google whatever we talk about. It's probably dangerous, <laughs> but... <laughs>
2: Well, I mean, if they Google Randy Savage and Slim Jim eating, <laughs> whole K-hole, they're going to open up right there. Just really ruin their nights.
1: Um. So, yeah, I mean, there's – there's, I don't think there's any question that Rose helped Laura write these books. Mm-hmm. But, like, from book to book, there's some debate about, like, the extent to which Laura wrote or Rose wrote, right?
2: Yeah, there is some debate. Uh, it seems like – If you, according to this article that we read, uh, that most of the um, like banner super long descriptions of Pa just doing stuff like building a log cabin or making bullets, building a door using no nails, like lots of pages were written about that in this particular book. The speculation is that that's coming directly from Laura Ingalls Wilder and her memories of growing up on the frontier with her family. And that sounds that, pretty
0: boring. Like
2: <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Things, <laughs> this is one of the things that we can talk about because it sounds boring, but it is actually kind of gripping to read. One of the phrases <laughs> that they use in that New Yorker piece is radiant simplicity, which I think is a very good that's, way to describe these books. That's like have, a
0: beautiful backhanded compliment. That is a shining <laughs> backhanded compliment. <laughs>
2: If somebody radiant, told me, if they were like, this book is going to be, like, like 80% pa, like, writing a frontier how-to manual, <laughs> <laughs> like, observed through the eyes of a toddler.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> like, I don't know that I would have been on board for it, but actually reading it, it's thrilling, and I think it's one of the things that um, – has made these books like a pillar of American girlhood is like we like reading like really in-depth descriptions of people doing things that we would never do ourselves, like churning butter. Um, I will say that one of these books was definitely read aloud to me as a kid. I now know because I went through and I read some of the Wikipedia entries about the earlier books in the series. This is the third, but it's the most famous. So I felt like it would be like the best for your brand hashtag.
1: Um, didn't want to make you guys start with like a
2: deep cut, like big house, little house in the big woods, (laughs) you know, but that was read to me as a kid. And I remember because there's this very detailed description of them like making maple candy in the snow and they like boil the sap in their like iron cast iron pan and then they take it outside and they pour it onto the snow and then they eat like the frozen maple syrup and this was so meaningful that as soon as i read it in the descriptions i was like oh my god i remember that being read to me and just like dreaming of this like alien civilization (laughs) (laughs) where like that was a treat
1: (laughs) yeah i mean i i read these as a kid
2: look you're so, a better american girl than I me <laughs> <laughs> well
1: thank you um and i don't i don't remember a ton like i mean the maple candy thing sticks out there's another scene and i think a later book than little house on the prairie where they move into this house that doesn't have a roof yet and it's winter and it like snows on them and they <laughs> and they're I don't know. Like they almost froze to death or something, but it's all, it's all the number of times they
2: almost die. is just incalculable. (laughs) 24 pages into this book. It looks like their bulldog has drowned. And I almost threw in the towel right there. It was like dogs (laughs) drowning. No, (laughs) like you can kill. Like at one point, one of the girls goes blind, not in this book, but somewhere in there, it's like, whatever, make a girl go blind. Fine. Drown your trusty bulldog. no, No, Laura (laughs) Ingalls Wilder. I will not be here for this. Thankfully, he comes back like 10 pages later. They think he's a wolf. Pa almost shoots him, but he's not a wolf. So
1: it's great. Good eye, Pa. No, it's like like, all this kind of horrible sometimes stuff.
2: Super horrible stuff all the time. The the,
1: the eyes of this, because it's told through the eyes of a youngish child, I think there's like a dreamy, like sentimental quality about it. And so it doesn't really... Come up until after you're thinking about it, like how terrible some of it is.
2: Just relentlessly terrible. um And like, what's the romance of austerity that these books are presenting? And like, why is it alluring to like nine year old children, uh-huh. particularly girls? <clears throat> but this is all, um I, I'm doing things completely out of order here. But That's one fine. of the questions that this brings up for me is so I do a lot of dealing with children's literature. And we're in a moment right now in librarianship where we're very eager to label things historical fiction. So, like, if a book is set in 1987, even if it is not about historical events in 1987, if it's just, like, it happens to be set there, that's considered historical fiction by many librarians. Like, they would label it as such. Okay. Um, (laughs) And there are a lot of librarians who feel like if a book is set in 1987, but it's not about, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall. That didn't happen in 1987, I know that, but, you know, it was just like <laughs> like like a roughly adjacent historical thing.
1: Sure. It's pretty close. It's close a pretty impression Close enough it's, for us. Yeah, guys.
2: <laughs> you, you really have my back here, and I appreciate that. <laughs> in my digressive, uh, a historical history lesson. But they feel like if it's not dealing with events that could only happen in that time that you're doing a disservice to kids to set it in that time at all and you should just set it today Um, because children won't read about things that don't happen right now and aren't familiar to them and this idea is so prevalent that there are books that were written in the 1970s that have been updated and republished to be pertinent to kids today so like my personal favorites that have been um, massacred in this method our uh, Lois Duncan's suspense books for teenagers, which were all written in the 70s and 80s, which have recently been republished, updated, where everybody has cell phones. I haven't read them, no. but I know this to be garbage.
0: <laughs> I was just going to say, like, is are we approaching, like, the peak of this, which is, like, good night? Lamp, good night. iPad, good night. <laughs> Roku, good night. Moon, like is that good night? <laughs> robot dog, good night. Stepdad, like
2: yeah. What is this? Good night, updated good night, book? Good night stepdad's <laughs> gay partner. <laughs> you know, so on and so forth. Fun fact: I don't know if you guys know this because I don't know how much time you spend in tourist attractions looking at children's books but there are actually there's like a whole cottage franchise of like goodnight location like goodnight boston goodnight philadelphia goodnight fenway park they've just like stolen the basic framework of goodnight moon but then they just write it to be location specific like when bands like change lyrics in their songs that they're about like whatever podunk town they happen to be singing in at that particular time (laughs) Uh, they're very wow. I mean like I assume they sell well Because literally every museum gift shop owns them Like the next time you're in a museum gift shop One, shop the children's section Because that's where all the best stuff is And two, look out <laughs> for the Good night, fill in your location here books
1: Good night, Cincinnati Museum of Art good, You know Exactly um, Good night, so- Cleveland Good night, empty streets <laughs> good night dying industry
2: (laughs) good night rusted out tire factories (laughs) good night to the little old hobo whispering hush
1: but we kid Cleveland we we (laughs) love you guys (laughs) in Cleveland all three of you up there
0: Oh, my God. Uh, so we're talking about this book ostensibly. Ostensibly. Um, wh- you were talking, we were talking a little bit about the radiant simplicity. Uh, well, we should probably circle back a little bit later to Rose's potential ghostwriting. But about the book itself and what you're saying about like what is the uh, appeal of these novels to younger readers or mm-hmm. to anyone, why they endure... Laura Ingalls Wilder kind of originally wrote some of these stories not for younger readers, right? Like it was like Pioneer Girl or Pioneer Woman or something like that. Why do you think the translation, if you can assess this at all, Mm -hmm. like what about it coming from a younger perspective for a younger audience makes it work?
2: This is tricky, right? Because, of course, I haven't read the uh, memoir as it was originally constituted for adults, but speaking to the existing work and why having a child's perspective is so valuable is I think it gives you a more natural way in to these sort of like Zen paragraphs of Pa, I'm going to return to it again because it's very uh, long, and gripping, weirdly, Pa building a oaken door with no nails. <clears throat> um, and you know, if it was just an adult observing that, you wouldn't necessarily get this sort of grainy detail and you wouldn't get what you referred to, Andrew, as the sort of dreamy quality that comes along with it that gives it kind of like a baked-in nostalgia feeling because you can relate to watching your parents do things as a child and Mm. how even the most boring task is kind of infused with this special adult air of sophistication just because Mm -hmm. it's being done by your parents and you couldn't do it yourself. Um, So it gets in the way of it being like a dry how-to manual because there's this mystical level of just like adult glamour applied to everything, including ironing clothing (laughs) when you don't even have a house. (laughs) Which Ma does. Like when they they travel from Wisconsin to uh, Osage territory in – Oh, boy. Kansas, says there on the back go. of the book. I'm great. <laughs> nice. great, Very retentive mind. High attention to detail. But they travel to Kansas. And before they've even decided that they're going to build the house, Pa's like, okay, we're going to camp here for a little while. It looks good. We're close to water. And, like, the third thing Ma does after washing their clothing, which does not seem that necessary to me. But, like, whatever. Washing clothing. I can see why you might want to do that. She irons all of their dresses. And you're like, Ma, like... Look at your priorities. Like, look at your choices here. (laughs) Like, I live in a house with running water, electricity, and a washing machine, and I have never ironed anything in my life. (laughs) And this woman- I
1: only iron in hotel rooms. Is that weird?
2: No. I mean, I've ironed things in (laughs) hotel rooms, too. You know why? Because, like, that's a situation where you pack a formal piece of clothing and you need it to look good-
1: yeah, and you've balled it up, and right? And it in you your like rolled it up, bag. half so, half yeah.
2: wet, because you clearly didn't pack in advance or wash your clothing far enough ahead that like you could put it into your suitcase completely dry. Like it's just a little right. damp because <laughs> you're doing it at like four thirty in the morning, and you have to be at the door <laughs> at five oh two. I don't know about you guys, I would definitely not have survived if I were a Little House <laughs> in the Prairie character.
1: Yeah, I think that's part of the allure of these books. Is like. I'm reading about them like on my iPhone (laughs) while I eat a sandwich. Right. On a subway train. Yeah. And like those, none of those things are things that they had in (laughs) Little House on the Prairie times. None of those
2: things. But I think the lasting popularity of these books is a direct rebuke to the dummies who are like, Oh, kids won't read about it unless it has cell phones in it. It's like, really? Because kids read, Pa, build a door for eight pages. Generations of children <laughs> dream about pa building doors with wooden whittled wooden pegs.
0: So I presume other things happen other in this book happen. other than doors. What are some of the kind of. the highlights, if if you will? Who are who's here? Who's living in this house on the prairie and what are they up to?
2: Well, who's living in this little house on the prairie? We have pa, ma, uh, Laura, of course. her older sister, Mary, and their little sister, Carrie, and most importantly, Jack the Bulldog. Okay. <laughs> there are some horses too, but in addition to frontier narratives, I was never a horse girl. Interesting. Really only fantasized about gothic mansions and having staff.
0: Well, horses, yeah, horses can't wear, like, high collars or, like, neck frills or anything or like that. I mean, like, or, they, yeah.
2: <laughs> they probably can, but... <laughs> we haven't didn't. let them yet. The yeah. horse books for children are more about, like, the, the like, wild nobility of a stallion. And they're less about, like, like braid bows into its hair and take it to a show where it prances like a dressage pony.
0: Yeah, it's not about horses with, like, manners. It's right, not egalitarian horses. <laughs> Exactly. This horse was marrying off this other horse to get more land. Like that was not
2: not a what was going on.
0: It's not what Black Beauty's all about.
2: No, no, definitely not.
1: <laughs> Can we get like Jane Austen novels rewritten to feature horses? I'm sure it's
0: on the internet. I'm sure El James is working on it right now. Andrew. Like a
1: suitor comes by and he gives you really good oats and say you marry him.
2: <laughs> um. I-
0: <laughs> I can't, I can't follow that up, Margaret. What are these people doing on the prairie?
2: Mm, well, they're still than
0: building, other than the doors. I know about the doors. They
2: are doing like way less than you would expect for a 350-page book. <laughs> okay. Um, they are so traveling from Wisconsin mm-hmm. to Kansas, mm-hmm. getting to Kansas, ironing some clothing, building a house. <laughs> Building a door for that house,
0: yeah. Big building step. a
2: roof for that house, uh, building a fireplace for that house. Lots of building happens here. Mm-hmm. Um, building a barn, building a barn door, uh, getting a fever, and then like, <laughs> like being sorry, so being scared out. of Indians or American Indians or Native Americans. I mean, they call them Indians in the book. I just wanted okay. to show that like I'm aware of the uh alternative terminologies. Okay. Um and then eventually being forced to leave the territory because it's still reserved for the Indians. Um they move there because Pa gets like a hot tip from his pals in Washington DC. Like <laughs> And they're like, it's going to open up for settlement any day now. And the best way to get good territory in an area that's opening for settlement is to move there before it's really legal and just claim squatters rights.
0: Um, That's that's amazing to me. I was when I was kind of getting ready for the show. I mm -hmm. forgot about this era of the world, I guess specifically America, where just like you could just move somewhere and build yourself a house. Yeah. Whether or not it was legal, just as long as no one else was there. If someone just decided – now every every part of the earth is owned. So if you just, like, build a house, someone already owns it and is mad that you're building a house there.
1: Right. Yeah, but, like, with America, like, we were just going west for a long time, and there was a lot of land. And it was only owned
2: by people. We were totally cool with killing.
1: Yeah. (laughs) But I was – I don't remember what – what po- what npr podcast it was one of them that i was listening to that was talking about the homestead act which was an 1862 thing yeah where pretty much anybody who went somewhere and grew crops for five years on a on like a 160 acre plot of land could just keep it yeah like, I think that you was had just to build, your land then
2: <laughs> you had to build like a sod house you had to build like something with like a roof but it didn't have to be anything fancy and you had to farm a certain number of acres for a certain number of years. And then they were like, cool. You got your house. Good work. Thank you. Own those acres. Knock yourself out.
1: Like, I can't just move. I can't just go somewhere and be like, this is mine now. I am here. And so (laughs) it belongs to me. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Oh, this is something that I did not link to you guys, but I should have linked to you guys. Another thing that your readers might enjoy checking out is there's a phenomenal essay by a writer named Eula Biss, and it's E-U-L-A-B-I-S-S, that is drawing analogs between how Wilder talks about uh, Indians in these books and pioneering in these books and the language that um, modern urban communities use when they talk about sort of like reclaiming, and gentrifying new neighborhoods.
0: Whoa. Mm-hmm.
2: It's so good. And I really liked it even before I read this book. And I like it even more now. I'm going to have to revisit it. But she wrote that in McSweeney's. And it was eventually published in an essay collection called No Man's Land. But it's still available on the internet to read for free.
0: Good. Good to know.
2: Great.
1: Yes, we will try and find that and post that too. We've got lots of good links this week. So but... their
0: so their relationship with Native Americans in this book is obviously fraught. It's not it's not a good one. Is it ever a good one?
2: Is it ever a good one? Well, there's some interesting stuff that people assert about this, which is that so Ma like hates Indians, like super hates them. Um, just doesn't like the sh- them. Pa is like more open minded, where he feels like some Indians are okay, other Indians aren't so great, but like you don't want to make the Indians angry you want to live with them cooperatively in this space because that's the best way you're going to keep your territory claim and not get, you know, um, scalped. Or similar racist assumptions he would probably make about what Indians would do.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. <laughs>
2: um, But in terms of how the Indians are depicted, like, not super great work, Ms. Wilder. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a really, really phenomenal... Uh, expert on the question of american indians in children's literature her name is debbie reese she does this it's she's basically a professor in doing this uh so you should google her she has great writing um but she really strongly feels that like these books are so fraught with stereotypes and read at such an impressionable age for kids that they should just be take like no one who's not reading it in a college course to examine the racism implicit in the stereotypes should even be touching these books
0: Hmm. i guess is that is that does that bolster or hurt the argument that kids should only read about kids with cell phones like (laughs) is that you know what i mean is that at a when you are that age are you able to put things in the right context are you what is the responsibility of anybody who gave you that book should kids only be given books to read? Should they not be allowed to go find? You know, this is like a whole host of developmental education issues. A whole I'm host sure of developmental like education of.
2: issues that I spend a lot of time thinking about <clears throat> and talking about with other people because it's really complicated. So um, books that I read as a child that Debbie Reese is not a fan of is uh, The Indian in the Cupboard Books by Lynn Reed Banks. I oh, love she- this. Did somebody else on this podcast listen to those? Read those? Yeah,
1: I I totally read those. Yeah, Yeah. they were
2: great, right? Depictions of Native cultures in those books, not sure. Pretty bad. Yeah,
1: no, that part wasn't great. The part where he turned little plastic toys into into living, breathing humans (laughs) was interesting. Great. Yeah.
2: (laughs) And the characters were all great, and it's not like Little Bear, the native family that he has, like they're characters you care about and are deeply invested in. They're just also characters that are like super flimsy, pretty yeah. racist stereotypes that bear no relation to any actual native cultures that exist in the United States and perpetuate this problem that Debbie Reese thinks is like a very serious issue, where um kids basically conceive of Native Americans and Indians as figures of myth that exist in the past that mm. are dead now and don't have any more meaningful cultural coherency than, like, they put feathers in their hair, they were noble, they took care of the land, they're dead now. Like, roughly the way we think of, like, King Arthur's knights, only less individualized.
0: Sure, <laughs> okay. yeah, because cause you tend to only think of them, at, I would say, you know the way we're talking about it right now is kind of indicative of it, right? You right. think about you think about tribes more than individuals. You think about uh, at this point the narrative is largely about how they were wronged for the most part, right? right. Hopefully, is what you're talking about. Um, but it is then, yeah. It's interesting to say that it's like they the use Indian, the word myth. It's the Indian like Indian
2: man surveying the territory, weathered <clears throat> face, single tear drifts down his cheek. That. and they're
0: and they're not modern. There's not a no. modern image that is right in any mainstream culture. There's actually been a pretty interesting uh debate about this going on in the theater community that I've seen as well going on online interesting. about who is, you know, who's ra- allowed to tell those stories, who who are allowed to portray those characters on stage. So it's it's certainly something an issue that is in the zeitgeist as as a lot of similar issues are right now.
2: mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Um, so, so for me, I, I feel like it's most effective for me to be like, well, I read these books as a kid. I loved them. I would probably, not these ones, not the Little House on the Prairie books, but the Indian in the Cupboard books by Lynn Reed Banks. And, you know, if I were thinking about it, if I had children in my life I wanted to share books with, would I share these books? Maybe. Because like I say, I had an amazing reading experience with them when I was a kid. I think they're terrific. Um... But there's this question of like they have some seriously problematic racial aspects to them. Um, and I have to sort of examine like, did encountering Little Bear and his sort of archetypal Indianness poison my brain? Did it make me care less when I realized that Indian culture was more individuated than that and had more modern problems? I don't think it did. But I can tell you that reading the part-time... the partly true... Sorry. The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie, which is a very recent publication for older teenagers, um, totally grounded me in current Native American issues in a way that nothing I'd ever read before had, and in a mm-hmm. way that was really, like, electrifying and exciting. And... So in that case, what I would say is that the problem isn't necessarily Laura Ingalls Wilder or Lynn Reed Banks in and of themselves. It's the fact that we don't have the counter narratives that actually do discuss Native culture with care and specificity and insight. Yeah. Um, that we don't have the ones that situate it in the modern day or we don't have the ones that situate it in the past, but not from the perspective of a white settler, from the perspective of, you know, a Native child who's experiencing this incursion of these weird white people who iron when they really don't need to. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like what they would be making of those circumstances. Um, And I think maybe if we can put a little bit of energy in correctively balancing both of those things, that would be great. I can definitely say that I would not be psyched if I knew my child was studying Little House on the Prairie in school. Cool. All right. Because I think historically, like it's presented as factual, but it's shady on how actually factually accurate it is. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's not a thing that I would want my kid doing in like an English class. They're just better Mm. books. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about kind of the um, rugged individualism that's at the heart of this book, because I feel like that is both part of the time period. It's part of the initial appeal of these books when they were published kind of just after and during the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it also may tie into some of the less seemly aspects of kind of what you've been talking about, Margaret.
2: Right, right. Uh, The place where these books go from being sort of poured over and beloved children's tome in much the way your technical manuals for Star Wars (laughs) were... Um, (laughs) thank you and get transmuted into like american myth making and rugged individualism and manifest destiny and all of that like hot stuff um is a really interesting one and in the book i think It read as less polemical than I was expecting. I was thinking that my experience of this would be, especially after reading the New Yorker article, would be very similar to my experience of finally reading *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe* like as an adult. Where I was like, "Wow,
1: yeah."
2: Just like up to up to the ears with Jesus imagery, I was like, "Whoa, (laughs) C.S. Lewis, calm down! Like maybe a little. Like you're basically plagiarizing the Bible. You're just." tweeing it up a little bit you're just like adding some wes andersonian touches like like a fawn with like a jaunty scarf right and i'm gonna retell the
0: bible with my favorite 21st century directors
2: yeah i'm just gonna look into my little crystal ball Mm -hmm. gonna anticipate wes anderson and i'm just gonna bring his aesthetic into this whole scene
0: yeah the whole book is actually like you cut off the front of the wardrobe and you can see all of it at once and it just <laughs> kind of pans around like a little dollhouse that's the whole novel
2: <laughs> i mean like i actually now would really like to see wes anderson's Lion the witch in the wardrobe
0: oh it'd probably be really great but it'd, it'd probably, probably have be- like Ed Norton in it, and it would have Ray Fines in it. Yeah, who's Aslan?
1: Who is Aslan? Willem (laughs) Dafoe? Let's go. Come on. Okay, cool.
2: Bill Murray (laughs) is obviously Aslan. Oh, good call. Good call. (laughs) I mean, it's just transparently correct. (laughs) Just
1: have a laconic, disaffected (laughs) Aslan. I don't know if that would play very well.
2: (laughs) It's a Wes Anderson movie. Everyone is laconic and disaffected. (laughs) That's the whole aesthetic. (laughs) laconic disaffected and perfectly framed in the center of the shot it would be great yeah but this was a big tangent and i can't even remember where it started oh rugged individualism i was expecting that when i read these books that the polemic polemic would be so transparent to my adult eyes that i wouldn't be able to Like, dig into the narrative and enjoy it the way a child would. Not the case. I totally enjoyed this the way a child would. Uh, I really underestimated my own interest in watching people do menial tasks that I would never ever do myself. Like, building things.
0: Are the stakes of the menial tasks high? Is that what makes it interesting? Because they're, like, out on the plains where if they don't iron their clothes, they're going to die. Or if, like, they don't get a door on the house, like, the lions come in. Like
2: the reason they get doors on the house is because there are wolves around. (laughs) So, I mean, like, yeah, the stakes are high. They have to dig a well. And while they're digging the well, like, the neighbor who's helping them almost dies because he doesn't take sufficient care to, like, send a candle down the well shaft... And make sure it comes back up, you know. So he like goes down to start digging the well, and there's this low lying gas that just knocks him out. And like Pa has to like jump in and save him and bring him out. And Ma is like not happy with that neighbor.
0: (laughs) Ma sounds like a trip. Ma sounds (laughs) like Ma sounds like she does not suffer
1: fools. Because Pa's got these itchy feet, like all. All these books are just about how Pa's dragging them all over yeah. the American West. Yeah, like,
2: Pa does not sound like like I don't listen. I don't read these books and be like Pa Wilder. You know, <laughs> he's the man for me. <laughs> he is not the man for me.
0: You're not buying the Team Pa T-shirt that I'm no. selling. <laughs> Team Pa.
2: I am not buying the Team Pa T-shirt. Okay. Um, he doesn't build, like, any bookshelves at all, so, like, his woodworking <laughs> skills are completely useless to me. Okay. <laughs> like, forget <laughs> a roof. Who needs that? Custom-built bookshelves is where it's at. <laughs> um, so, to answer your question, yes, there are stakes. Um, <laughs> there are important stakes to these actions. But I think there's honestly just something sort of hypnotic in how they're described and And it's not that different from how the Millennium Falcon works. You know what I mean? Like, it is basically a fantasy world to somebody as removed from these kind of day-to-day concerns where, you know, we just, like, step into a house and it's already built and it already has doors and we buy clothing and it's already sewn. To deal with just the tactile aspects of, you know, like, whittling a peg and drilling a corresponding hole in a like solid oak slab that you like dragged from the stream to your house it's just it's fascinating it's fascinating and it's described in such a way that it's also very romantic and mm. you just kind of sit there and you're like man maybe like I should be whittling something right now
0: well that's this is basically <laughs> the the basis of the HGTV network right now right yeah, like this is see? like I watch people build houses and have trouble building houses and get in fights with other people while they build houses. Right. And then some other people come up and buy it. That's different. But you mm-hmm. know, that's the whole network.
1: Right. For the the appeal of that for me is like that's as close to those activities as I never as I ever need to be. <laughs> like I, it's enough to watch somebody else like make over a living room for five hundred dollars. Like I I don't need those skills really. I just I just need I just want to watch someone do them and then go on about my business,
0: <laughs> which is yeah. reading books and eating sandwiches
2: and wishing someone would build me custom bookshelves yes, yes. As, okay. we've yeah. as we've discussed as we've discussed I'm flipping through um so okay i I'm flipping through because I have like a lot of little flagged passages that I was just gonna revisit so I'll just give you an okay. example of how the books are racist. this is not particularly coherent with the thing we're discussing right now but it was the tab i opened up to first and it's pretty telling so paragraph here is pa knew all about wild animals so he must know about wild men too laura thought he would show her a papoose someday just that he has shown her fawns and little bears and wolves so like we have a pretty clear like 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 it's a list of animals and then also indians no because indians are animals too (laughs) <laughs> oh, no. Han knows about wild animals, so he must know about wild men. And, like, one of the things that Debbie talks about in all of her scholarship about this is people will respond to these things and they'll say, well, this is how this is how people thought of Indians at that time. So it's historically accurate for it to be documented this way. And her main counterpoint to that is it's like, well, if we thought they were wild animals, why did we make, like, hundreds of treaties with them as sovereign nations over and over and over again? Clearly yeah. on some level – People were recognizing that these were sophisticated societies full of intelligent people, not very different on a meaningful level from the white settlers who are fighting with them, but that it really benefited the white settlers to think of them as not real owners of the territory, not real people, and not real figures worthy of concern as something like a wild animal where it's like we're sad that the buffalo are gone. Right. But like, you know, whatever it was going to happen to them. Eventually, we needed to build factories and houses there. And, you know, wild buffaloes are only so important to our day to day existence. If we think of Native Americans in roughly the same way, it's pretty convenient. And like we don't have to hand much about how badly we've ruined everything for them forever and ever. <laughs> Amen.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, those those treaties that you mentioned, I don't think we were super awesome at honoring the terms Whoa. of those, like, <laughs> we historically. We definitely weren't. Yeah.
2: Uh, counter. So that's maybe the books at their worst. And one of the paragraphs that I marked early in the book as the book sort of at its best as a point where I was like, oh, yeah, this is something that I can imagine. Like, if an if someone gave these to my child, they wouldn't be like, get that trash out of my house. <laughs> I would be like, hey, bring him in here. There's some beautiful passages. Um, and they say, thickly in front of the open wagon top hung the large glittering stars. Pa could reach them, Laura thought. She wished he would pick the largest one from the thread on which it hung from the sky and give it to her. She was wide awake and not sleepy at all. But suddenly she was very much surprised the large star winked at her. Then she was waking up next morning. And that's just the thing where it is really describing just this alien landscape with Mm -hmm. such radiant simplicity and romance that it's really transporting. You just feel like you're there on the prairie staring at this glittering blanket of stars. And you're like, man, maybe that radiant simplicity would be better than my iPhone. Ha ha ha. JK. JK. I'm going to play two dots now. (laughs) (laughs) At least if you're me.
0: I'm gonna tweet about how I thought about putting my phone down. Ha ha!
2: <laughs> exactly.
0: This um, well, that passage actually seems like a good way to bring Rose back into this, um, her daughter, because mm-hmm. from that initial uh, Wilder Women article we were talking about, there's a great quote from Rose that she uh, wrote in a letter to Laura, where because initially she was actually editing the manuscripts like while they were getting ready for publication because they lived together. Um, Rose moved out a couple years in, and they were doing it by correspondence. Rose wrote to Laura at one point, a good bit of the detail that I add to your copy is for pure sensory effect. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, kind of what you've been saying, Margaret, about how some of this book is, is kind of romantic memories of detail and minutiae and whatever.
2: There is a lot of pure sensory effect in these books, and it is highly effective. Uh, Like, I would never want to eat, like, roughly, like, cornmeal and salted meat for months on end. Cornmeal, salted meat, and molasses. But the way they describe it, it sounds kind of like heaven. It's not that different. Like, I think there's something alchemical, and just any written description of food is like immediately appealing and appetizing. I think that's like 80% of why anybody reads the Redwall books by Brian Jakes. It's just like, I just want to hear about like mice eating like biscuits with elderflower jam and clotted cream forever.
1: Even though I don't even know what all that stuff is. No, like Turkish
2: Delight (laughs) in the Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe. (laughs) Turkish Delight tastes like garbage. It looks
1: like garbage. It looks looks like like garbage. Like powdered sugar jello squares or something. I'm not even
2: (laughs) It looks like drugs that you would only take (laughs) (laughs) if they had like serious hallucinogenic effects.
1: If a witch gave them to you,
2: <laughs> if a witch gave them to you, you would look at Turkish delight and you'd be like, "No, oh, no, this looks, this looks gross." But like, <laughs> I hear if I take it and watch 2001: A Space Odyssey, it's gonna be a great night. Um, but if you're just eating it to to eat Turkish delight, like I want, I want science to examine your mouth and report back to me about why it's wrong and broken. <laughs>
1: I'm afraid but, he has wrong mouth it's inoperable
2: <laughs> but if you read those books as a child it becomes this just like mythic substance it's Turkish delight and you can imbue it with all kinds of incredible just it, you imagine it must be the greatest tasting thing in the entire world because a child sells his soul to have more of it Right. Um, and the same effect is had in A Little House on the Prairie with uh, molasses Or at one point, they get out, like, the company sugar. And it's not even white sugar. It's, like, light brown sugar. So that their neighbor can have sugar-sweetened coffee instead of molasses-sweetened coffee. And that kind of just, like I say, that tactile detail is really gripping. And I think another place you see a similar kind of um, appeal is the Harry Potter books. Like, Mm. those books are fun because there's magic in them, kind of. But those books are mostly fun because they mash up, like... Like, every notion you've ever had about mythical Britain and, like, like put a cozy cable-knit sweater on it and give it, like, minimal stakes, boarding school, whatnot. Yeah, and, they then combine it,
1: and then combine it with some, like, remember the titans Z sports <laughs> stuff.
2: Right. <laughs> like, like, those books are fun because the world-building is so compelling and the world-building is inherently nostalgic. Mm-hmm. And oh, I think that's
0: that, true. Okay,
2: that's true of so many of the fantasy worlds we love best— inherently nostalgic fantasy worlds. And I'm just saying, publishers of America, open your minds and embrace the fact that the 1970s are just as much a space of nostalgic alienness to teenagers now as you know, 1893 Kansas. And and stop updating books because it's garbage. <laughs> It's
1: it's interesting that that people want to be so revisionist with books because you see, um, with TV a lot like period dramas have become Huge. the big thing and like this post this post Mad Men era like like even the Americans which is my which is my jam now. Right is set in the early eighties and it's not even super important that it's set in the early eighties, except for the fact that the cold war was still going on, but they just use like songs and clothes and wigs and stuff in a way that, that really, um, I don't know that really, that really makes you feel like you're there, right? I guess. And it's, it's really fun to be it's there. It's
2: transporting. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. If you're doing it well, if you're doing it right, and it doesn't even have to be conscious if you're just writing In a sufficiently compelling way about your present moment, 30 years from now, you're going to be including all kinds of refined specific details. Like, eventually, whatever supercomputer teenagers have that's roughly the same size as my iPhone is going to have a little case that they put on it that makes it look like an iPhone, the same way (laughs) I can buy a cassette tape case for my iPhone.
1: Right, or the Game Boy one. Right. Or whatever it is. It's like
2: whatever like world destroying supercomputer they're going to be able to carry around in the palm of their hand, it is going to nostalgically mimic this fancy computer I hold in my hand right now. Because mm-hmm. we like old things we just do. Um, and that's basically like these books are like we like old things we just do the series. Because there's <laughs> not a ton that happens in them.
0: Okay. Uh, before we go, because we're probably r- running out of time. Yeah, we're getting um, close. That's sorry. Let's no, no. That's this fine. has no, been this good. Be great. I want to <laughs> talk briefly about. Uh, you tossed us some of the info on Rose and the prototyp, like proto libertarian stuff mm-hmm. that I do think kind of plays into this romantic nostalgia of the rural american way right like laura and rose both i think were not the biggest fans of fdr even though they were somewhat related to him they were like they were delanos and they i think laura was less aggressive than uh rose was but there was something about where they came from or where she saw herself as having come from that did not that caused her to look unkindly on like what she saw as handouts for the poor. Right. Like mm-hmm. if I can make it through the American West and let not have a roof while I'm ironing clothes by the river, then you don't need social security or whatever, you know, like <laughs> right. that's a false equivalency. That but, I shouldn't you know.
2: be paying taxes.
0: Yeah, precisely.
2: <laughs> right. Do, um. What, yeah. like
0: what foundation do you see for any of that in this books? Is that a valid reading of them at all? Like,
2: Well, it's definitely a valid reading. It's very... It is not as polemical as uh, Jesus stuff in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But it's definitely baked in to kind of the ethics that the family is presenting and embracing. Like, to return to my favorite part, the reason Pa is building a door without nails is because he doesn't have any (laughs) nails. And uh, when he's going to build the roof... He is intended to do it without nails, too. But his neighbor has some and lends them to him. And Ma's like, I don't know how I feel about taking a handout. I don't want to be beholden to anybody. And Pa's like, no, 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 we're not beholden. This is just neighborliness. And I'll pay him back as soon as I go 40 miles to the town where there are nails. Mm-hmm. Um, And that's one of many exchanges in the books where this kind of like they just want to be sort of a a sovereign nation unto themselves, Mm -hmm. not dependent on anyone beyond themselves. Uh, and the only way that the government interacts with them is to screw, screw up their lives because they build this, you know, lovely little log cabin. The illustrations make it look just like Lincoln logs, except like (laughs) Pa's like making them himself. And they're (laughs) the size you would need them to be, to be a house rather than small enough for me to play with, with tiny child hands. Uh,
0: Well, and this is coming out of, like, she was born only a few years after the Civil War. We're in this kind of, like, grappling with what the federal government is and should do in the new territories. So you've got these people who are, like we said before, just, like, planting a flag in the ground that has home on it with the E written backwards. And it's... (laughs) (laughs) This is my little rascal's house on the prairie is what I'm talking about. And... Uh, and then the man shows up with the Pinkertons that he hired or whatever, and it's like, pay taxes, and also <laughs> the Native Americans live here. Excuse right. me, we call them Indians because it's the 19th century, but get out. <laughs> so there's this, like, see, is there is there tension? What is the tension in the book between this family and, like, America, if that's part of this book? Or I know that's, like, part of the series a little bit with, like, the federales and whatnot.
2: I think it is more subtextual than textual, uh so the government and fear of the government manually removing them from mm-hmm. the territory in the house is the inciting change in the book that leads them to abandon this homestead they've formed in Kansas okay um that and fear that the Indians are gonna kill them. Um. So either guy? like Johnny Law is gonna come in and be like you scofflaws, skedaddle, or <laughs> he's he's
0: like a jazz musician.
2: Yeah, I that? don't know why he t- he time traveled there from 1930s Chicago <laughs> to to crack down on their bootlegging.
0: <laughs> Wait, was his name Johnny? S- no, his
2: name was I Johnny Law. Johnny I Law.
1: You, uh, for a second, his name was Johnny Scofflaws.
2: <laughs> No. No, that's no, where. Johnny
1: law is the guy who Johnny Law fights. Oh, there are Gennies.
2: Yeah, they're the uh they're the nineteen forty two equivalent of spy versus spy. Great. <laughs> Johnny Law V, Johnny law, So they have
0: to leave because the government's coming.
2: Right. They have to leave because yeah. the government's coming. Um but that's basically the only meaningful interaction that they have with the government because they're living in ungoverned frontier. But the implicit allure of that lifestyle is everything that these books are selling. And that's very much sort of the core romantic engine of, you know, a lot of conservative nonsense is what I'm going to say. Because I've been trying not to swear on this podcast. <laughs> conservative nonsense. Admirably. Admirably. <laughs> Uh, failing. I've definitely said the S word a couple of times, but that's like super mild swearing for me. Hi, I want to work with children someday. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they gotta learn cussing from somebody, like
2: <laughs> exactly. And I just want to step up and be that person in their lives to teach them <laughs> all of the best swear words and the choicest moments to use them.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's that's only language has
2: power. You know. That's all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if uh if andrew gonna take us home okay all right okay. and uh from, are you though no i'm not um <laughs> uh, if <laughs> you the listener wanted to write in and tell us your favorite swear word that we won't say on air uh you can do it at overduepod gmail at gmail.com uh don't tweet them to us at twitter.com slash overdue pod because that goes into the library of congress um you could also
2: you can tweet them at me
0: Oh, yeah, at Mrs. Friday Next, right? Yeah. Great.
2: Swear at me on Twitter as much as you want to. Just (laughs) do it well.
0: Uh, You can also find some of the articles that we talked about on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash overdue pod. Andrew, if they wanted other
1: information, where should they go? Uh, We have a website up on the internet at www.overduepodcast.com. Up there, we have um, the links to our iTunes page, to our Stitcher page, to our RSS feed. Um, all the ways that you can use to subscribe to the show and get new episodes as soon as they come out. Um, we have also got Amazon links to the books that we have read that we're going to read that you can click on and use if you want to read along or read ahead. And uh, we've got a link to our Patreon page, which is just a, a way for people who really like us to chip in and, and help us with hosting and book buying fees and all of the all of the costs that we incur with our, with our phenomenally successful book podcast. <laughs> and your
2: lack of rugged individualism that's yes, true right
1: yeah no, we are reliant on handouts unlike from pa. people
0: patreon was started <laughs> by franklin delano roosevelt i don't know <laughs> if you know that uh new new deal margaret this are there any other internet projects of yours that people should be on the lookout for
2: well uh if people tuning into this enjoy my salty commentary they can follow me on twitter where i am occasionally salty and constantly commentarying mm-hmm. <laughs> um <laughs> alternately, they can also find my newsletter at a uh, tinyletter.com slash two bossy dames. And that's just me and my great pal Sophie uh, picking out all of the best things that the internet has done in a given week and transmitting them to you electronically with like a light layer of whimsy and uh, old timey slang just peppered in there and Good. great yes. gifts. The gifts yeah, are you mostly should do my that, work.
1: Cause I was, I was going to say your gift game is super on point. Yeah.
2: So. <laughs> Um, Google image search guys you can filter it so that it only shows you animated images and just Google with hope in your heart and you'll find everything you could ever dream of
0: (laughs) I am so happy that I heard the phrase Google with hope in your heart today (laughs) Margaret thank you so much for joining us
2: thank you guys for having me this was really fun
1: okay everybody uh we will be back next Monday and until then try to be happy